something that needs doing, always something that needs attending to. Well, this picture was taken many years ago during uh, winter, one of, probably one of the school holidays. Uh, overnight, a storm came through and took down this massive gum tree right outside the back of the house. It just took off the gutter on the end of the roof, um, and, but it could have been a lot worse. So it was all very uh, exciting when we got up in the morning. Um, and that's little Caleb in the picture, all of two years old. Uh, he could hardly get his breakfast down before he was insisting we had to get him into his wet weather gear and his gumboots uh, so he could get out there and start the job. Um, and so with all the, the, the right uh, noises and all the appropriate seriousness of a two-year-old, uh, he got stuck into cutting up this tree for me. Um, and I, I did have to assure someone last night that, yes, that, that is actually a toy angle grinder we gave him. Uh, <laughs> we weren't in the habit of usually giving power tools to our two-year-olds. Um, I have to say, though, these are the, those were the good old days. Um, these days, um, my domestic workforce has become unionised, and getting anything done can, require, uh, can, can involve a lot of protests and uh, walk-offs, and we certainly don't start any job before there's been a, uh, uh, an arbitrated negotiation on, on pay and conditions. Have you noticed that younger children love to imitate their parents? And they love to imitate their parents at work. In fact, some children will grow up into their parents' careers because of that. Well, we're continuing our series on uh, the Apostle Peter's first letter to churches in Asia Minor. Uh, you recall that he's speaking to Christians whom he's characterised as exiles and foreigners in the culture of their day because having become Christians... They no longer fit the values and aspirations of their native culture. And he began his letter by reminding his readers that God has redeemed them out of slavery and made them his children. They have a new identity now as his family. And now, as children, we learned last week, their outward way of living is meant to resemble their father. Children bear the image of their parents. So... Be holy as I am holy, is the main command of the Christian life. In today's text, Peter's going to develop that theme further by describing how, as children, they now participate in the work of the Father. Kids delight to imitate their parents at work. Well, we begin with a creation narrative because that tells us how God, as a king, worked to create and bring order to the world. And, of course, the penultimate act of this week of creation was the making of the man and the woman. Let us make human beings in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. This narrative gets retold uh, in Genesis 2, and there we learn that the man was specifically created to work and care for the garden, and his wife was a gift to him as a fitting partner to join him in this work. And so it's common for theologians to summarise the work that the man and the woman are given to do under three headings. In the first place, uh, they are made to have 
communion with God. They are made to live in relationship with him. The second kind of work is community building. Be fruitful, increase in number, and fill the earth. And the third type of work they are given is co-rule with God. They are made to share God's rule over creation, over the fish, the birds, and every living creature. Made in his image, the man and woman share God's kingly work in the world. They exercise authority and responsibility on behalf of God as his representatives in his image. But it's also been observed that the man and the woman have a priestly role. They are mediators in creation. On the one hand, they're made of the same stuff as creation, the same biological and chemical stuff that everything else is made of, so they're properly creatures. But on the other hand, God has breathed life into them. They are the only creatures who bear God's image. And that is what a priest does. A priest mediates between God and his creation and between creation and God, returning praise back to him. What we discover then is that work is a part of creation before the fall. Work is inherently good and work is inherently human. Of course, you know the story from this point, how it goes. The man and the woman sin, everything changes, and their work becomes spoiled. They're banished away from the garden, away from God's presence. They do continue to build community, so they have children and they, and they go on filling the earth, although now, for the woman, that becomes a matter of great pain. And as we turn the page into chapter 4 of Genesis, we discover that human community is very quickly marred by Cain's murder of his brother Abel. From that point on, human civilization is characterized by exclusion, competition, war, conquest. But perhaps the biggest disruption to the work that the man and the woman have to do is to their work as kings and priests. The ground will no longer simply offer up its fruit for humanity's livelihood. The man will toil painfully to eat, and he will struggle with thorns and thistles to do it. And now the mandate to rule over creatures of the earth is grossly deformed. As Eve is warned, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now the man and the woman can't even order their own marriage, let alone share in the work of ordering creation. Human work is now distorted and disfigured beyond all recognition. Well, our lesson from Peter's text this morning draws on the text of Exodus 19, where God says to Israel, Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. The newly born, newly redeemed nation of Israel is being restored in part to true human work again. They're restored to communion with God.
because the first thing God calls them to do is to build him a tabernacle, the forerunner of the temple that Solomon will build. And most of the book of Exodus goes on to describe the building of this tabernacle and how it is that God will live with them in their midst. They are to grow human community. Not only has the family of Jacob grown in, into a nation of hundreds of thousands of people, God now founds this nation as a community upon a covenant which prescribes for them how this nation is to function as his special people, what, what its worship is to be like, what its judicial and political systems are to be, how its social structure is to be formed, how it's to relate to the nations around them. Everything they need to flourish as God's nation is prescribed for them in the law. And most importantly, they have a priestly and a royal role to play. All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through them. And they are to mediate the reality and the goodness of the saving power of the one true God to all the nations. And ultimately, God says, all the nations will come to them. They are to rule over all. But again, you know this story. You know how it goes. And it goes badly. As the centuries passed, Israel fails to be true to their vocation. They break covenant with God and they become serial idolaters. And so instead of changing the world, the world changes them. And they are soon indistinguishable in their practice or their morality from the nations round about them. They are nothing like the people God called them to be. And so in the end, God has their temple destroyed, their king removed, and he sends them back into slavery in Assyria and Babylon. Israel has failed at its work. It's failed to be the people of God. But the good news is, God has not failed. Israel is the stump from which a tree will grow. The royal house of David is the foundation from which a, a building will rise. God intends to fulfill his covenant with David, with Israel, with Abraham, with Noah, with Adam and Eve. Well, with all that in mind, now we're ready to hear Peter's word to us this week. Verses 4 to 5. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by human beings, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus, the living stone, bearing the image of the Father and doing his work, and we in him become living stones ourselves, born anew in the image of our Father, and like keen children, participating in his work. Now, the great dilemma I faced as I prepared this sermon is the fact that practically every phrase in today's text is drawn from somewhere in the Old Testament and, and has a story a theme, a, a, an image that each could be the subject of their own sermon, um, but I don't think we have time for that. So we need to draw all those together, and, and the way Peter draws them together is with his unique metaphor 
for Jesus, the living stone. That's a very odd metaphor if you think about it, um, because uh, living and stone are, are obviously contradictions in terms, aren't they? Uh, a stone is inorganic, it's cold, it's lifeless, it's fixed in place and it's enduring, but a living stone implies something that's, well, alive, something that's growing and indeed something that is life-giving. So who is the stone in the Old Testament? Well, Psalm 18, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Enduring, unmoving. Peter combines that image with other Old Testament texts about the stone. So Psalm 118, 22 to 24. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's an old psalm. It, it was recited by the priests as they led Jewish pilgrims up to worship in the temple, particularly, we know, at the Feast of Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles. But the original speaker of these words, the one who calls himself the stone, is actually one of the Davidic kings coming up to the temple, fresh from battle, to praise God, who's delivered his house in the face of seemingly impossible odds and great opposition. This stone, then, is both king and priest. And then from Isaiah 28, verse 6, the precious cornerstone that God promises to lay in Zion. This is the foundation of a house which will exceed, succeed both the house of David and the house of the temple. Because Judah, with her kings and her priests, have failed. But God will not fail. So what we find here is the work that God intended for Adam and Eve, the work that God intended for Israel, is now taken up by Jesus. God become man. God who takes our humanity into himself now takes up the work of humanity on our behalf. Jesus, the stone, is the temple. Christians have always built what we now call churches, but they have never built temples, never built anything like an, an ancient Near Eastern temple because they've always understood God the Son is the temple. Jesus, the stone, is now the builder of human community. Born anew in him, we become the people, the nation under his kingship. And Jesus, the stone, ascended to the right hand of the Father, becomes both the true king, to whom is given all authority in heaven and on earth, and the true priest, always in the Father's presence, interceding for us, always in the Father's presence, eternally bearing the sacrifice of his blood to reconcile us. But don't forget, Jesus is also the living stone. Destroy this temple, he said, and I will raise it again in three days' time. He didn't say, kill me 
And in three days, my disciples will build a mausoleum in remembrance to my words and deeds. No, the disciples were confronted with a risen saviour. The early church did not preach the words and deeds of a dead prophet. They preached Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father, ruling eternally over creation, bringing justice and righteousness to bear. And because of this, Jesus is a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall, as Isaiah 8 says. You know, he is not the sideline to what we call the real events of history, political, economic, social events. God broke into history. The cross has shattered death. And, and by his resurrection and ascension, Jesus has established his claim as the rightful ruler of all things. His kingdom is the serious business of establishing righteousness and justice in the earth. He is the measure by which all kingdoms, all governments, all power structures will ultimately be judged and brought to account. He is the standard of morality and behaviour in light of which we must give account. Rebellious humanity must either bow its knee in glad acceptance of his invitation to live or dash itself to pieces on this rock. There's no alternative, there are no exceptions, there is no other reality. And because Jesus lives, we also live with him. And in fact, we become truly human for the first time. 1 Peter 2, verses 4 to 5, As you come to him, the living stone, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And he finishes similarly in verse 9. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Everything Jesus is, the work he does is now applied to us. We are the temple, connected to Jesus, rising upon him, the foundation stone. We have communion with God because he lives in us. We are the covenant people of God. The, the church is God's set-apart nation in the world, the expression of God's rule, the, the now and not yet kingdom of Jesus. And we are restored to the human vocation of being kings and priests. We now in Christ are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We are all priests. No disrespect to Stephen, but the New Testament knows nothing of a special class of superhuman Christian that it called priests. There was no such thing. Jesus was the only priest the church had, and we in him became a priesthood. Uh, to be sure, we've always recognised those with gifts, and sometimes we've set those people apart and freed them from uh, ordinary money earning in, in order to serve us better. But we are priests. We are all called.
called to do ministry. The, those who are gifted in the word and, and in other ways amongst us are there, as the Apostle Paul says, to enable us to do ministry, to equip us. We represent God to the world and we bring people to know him. But, of course, because the work of Jesus has not yet reached its full heights, we've not yet fully come into our work. I mean, that's what it means to be foreigners and exiles in this world. We're still awaiting our true home. We're citizens of the coming kingdom that is already here, but not yet fully realised. So, let me briefly say some things, then, about our work... And what it means that we are now children participating in the work that our father does. Our culture, of course, deems work to be something bad. Uh, in the first century world, where, where Peter is writing, work was for slaves. Free people and citizens were free from the drudgery of work uh, to pursue the pleasures of life and the real things that life had to offer. Well, that view of work is still with us in our culture, isn't it? Because the great goal of life is to get to of the weekend, the holiday, uh, retirement, where we're finally free to enjoy ourselves. But in Jesus, we discover all over again that work is good. Humans are made to work not as God's slaves, but as his children, participating in his work. Work is good because it is an extension of his rule, his justice, his righteousness, ultimately his blessing of all things that people may flourish in the world. And so now, as God's people, we have been created anew across all three domains of what constitutes human work. First, as the Westminster Catechism states, and I, I hardly need to tell you because I'm sure you study this every evening before you go to sleep, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. In other words, communion with God is what humans are intended to do, which is why love the Lord your God is the greatest of all the commandments. But in our culture... Work has mutated into communion with foreign gods, the worship of idols. There are many idols that catch us up in work, but two of the important ones are probably firstly love of money, because love of money distorts work. When uh, returning profits back to shareholders or personal wealth, wealth creation becomes the sole aim of business and employment, then the work itself and the people our work is meant to benefit become secondary concerns, if they concern us at all. Uh, one of the second idols that distorts work is love of work itself. When vocation or career is viewed as the gateway to a life of meaning or satisfaction or joy or fulfilment, when Finding identity through work you love 
becomes the goal of working, then work has become an idol. Because we were not made to love work, nor were we made to love the material benefits that work produces. We were made to love God. And as foreigners and aliens in this world, our work is meant to reflect our trust in God the Father as our true hope, our true joy, our true security. He is where we find our identity and our joy. Not our career, not our wealth, not the social standing that our work or our wealth might create for us. And because we work with and for our Father, then our work is done with care for the work. Care for the people that our work is intended to serve. Care for the materials of creation that we use to do that work. Work is communion with God. Loving God is what we do. Second, as sons of the Father, of course, we're born into a family. I'm saying it again. The Christian life is not a solitary journey. We are born into a community, and as Peter told us last week, that is a life of sincere love for one another, loving one another deeply and from the heart. Of course, again, in our culture, work has turned people into consumers whose pockets are to be plundered or into human resources that are to be used and exploited for financial gain. And our communities, such as they are, are built around the principle of exploitation for profit. So, for example, when when real estate and property development become solely driven by wealth creation and profitability, the idea of good housing in good neighbourhoods is necessarily sacrificed. So we're in a place now where we increasingly force people into the slavery of working harder and longer to pay a larger portion of their lifetime income for what turns out to be increasingly poorly built places in badly designed neighbourhoods far from the places people actually work or play or even wish to live. But if we're the nation of Jesus, the kingdom of God, then our presence in the world is meant to give witness to a kingdom in which persons matter, not prophets. A kingdom in which human flourishing is what God delights in. And so we're to live the reality of the kingdom by both loving one another and loving those in the world around us. Again, we were not made to work to love our work, but work is now the opportunity to love our neighbour, to serve others and not ourselves. I mean, the very climax of Jesus' work took him to the cross. Our work should also climax in service. Work is about loving your neighbour. And third, we have been restored to the work that God gave Adam and Eve tending the garden and caring for it, exercising authority over all living creatures. Adam and Eve had a mandate to share in God's rule over the material universe. But, once again, our culture overvalues material wealth at precisely the same time that it undervalues the material world. We are a culture 
of stuff, an endless procession of consumer goods, many of which we do not need, uh, made, uh, marketed to us to appeal to our greed, uh, our envy, our lust, our laziness, any number of sins really, and those things that we spend our time and money on to acquire very often turn out to be not only poorly made but poorly fitted for the job that they were actually intended to do, soon redundant and thereafter discarded. You know, Western living, the way we live, is founded upon excessive consumption and unnecessary waste. And embedded into that lifestyle is not just the exploitation of people, but the exploitation of the planet we live on. And it's a lifestyle supported by exploitative systems, exploitative systems of government and economy. I mean, right now we live in a time of world turmoil, um, a turmoil largely created by our dysfunctional lifestyle as consumers. We vote for leaders who can't see beyond the next election cycle or their own career prospects, but leaders who in turn promise to meet our every childish whim. We end up supporting distant warlords and corrupt, oppressive regimes because they provide us with the petrol, the precious metals, uh, the DVD players, the recreational drugs that we demand at the prices we demand. But as the people of God, we live out the justice and righteousness of the rule of Jesus. So not only do we assign value to other people, we assign value to the physical world, neither making idols out of material gifts that God's given us, but nor devaluing and degrading the physical world, which God has declared to be good. We live in a, not in a way that undermines human community in distant places, but causes human community everywhere to flourish, that brings people into the very things that we enjoy. Work is about sharing in God's rule over the universe, mediating God to the world about us, returning praise and bringing people back to him. Well, now I think we're finally, in Peter's letter, beginning to understand what it means to be the chosen people living in the world as strangers and aliens. It means to be a people who are living the resurrection of Jesus and his now and not yet kingdom so that all may see. And simply put, as children, we delight to imitate our Father and to do his work. Peace to all of you who are in Christ.